0: Hi, friends, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and today we are answering some of your fertility questions. These are my favorite episodes because I love hearing the questions you have, and I love making sure that you have the information that you need about your body. So before we dive in, if you'd like to call and leave one of your questions, you can call and leave one on the voicemail at 657 229 Three six seven two. Again, that is six five seven two two nine three six seven two. Your questions can be completely anonymous. Leave your name, whatever makes you comfortable. Also, we do a weekly Q and A segment on each podcast episode. This is called "For Fertility's Sake," and you can ask these questions on Instagram on Monday. Some questions will be answered here some will be answered on Instagram, and some will be answered in the newsletter. So sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter so you can stay in touch with all the things that are going on, including my favorite recipes, discount codes, everything. All right, well, let's dive in and answer your fertility questions.
1: Hi, Natalie. I'm calling from up in Canada. I'm wondering if you can help me understand result I just received, my ultrasound said that I either have a subseptate or septate uterus, and I'm wondering if there's an important difference between the two. I watched all of your videos and podcasts on the topic, and um, I didn't hear anything about the subseptate presentation, so I'm just wondering if, if you can help me understand that a little more or how I can find out whether it's one or the other. Thanks.
0: All right. This is a really good question, and I'm a little mad at radiology for even leading you down this rabbit hole because I'm sure you've Googled this and I Googled it because I wanted to see what you're seeing and there's so much bad information. People are saying the wrong thing, so let's just break it down. The reality is these are the same thing. So if we think about what is a complete septum, there is such a thing as a complete septum and that is where the septum is extending the entire length of the uterine cavity. So if we remember that the uterus was started as two different mullerian buds, these little balls of tissue extended and then they fused together and then that midline portion which is connecting the two different buds got reabsorbed. And failure of complete reabsorption of that midline septum is a septum. Now, a complete septum is complete failure. You have the septum going all the way down through. These can be super difficult, and they're more rare. Remember that this Mullerian tissue composes the top one-third of the vaginal cavity, the cervix, the whole uterus, and the fallopian tubes. Now, a sub-septum, by definition, is a septum that doesn't come all the way down to the cervix. We refer to this almost always as just a septum. And when you say a complete septum or a septum that does come all the way down is a complete septum, there is such a thing as an arcuate uterus. And I'm just really curious if the radiologist meant partial septum versus arcuate uterus or septum versus arcuate. An arcuate uterus is one that is considered to be a normal variant. And if we think about it, it has a very slight dip at the top. So imagine that that midline connecting septum was reabsorbing and just left a tiny little piece at the top. The big differentiating thing here is your reproductive outcome. So an arcuate uterus, that septum was almost entirely reabsorbed. So you have very good myometrial tissue and endometrial tissue surrounding the uterus. There is good blood flow everywhere. There is no increased risk of miscarriage, birth abnormality, malpresentation, C-section, growth restriction, all the things that we see with a uterine septum in place. A uterine septum, whether it's complete or subseptate, let's just call them all septums, a uterine septum is avascular. So it is now protruding into the uterine cavity. It does not have that same muscular layer behind it it doesn't have the same blood flow and now you are predisposed to a much higher risk of a miscarriage of birth abnormalities if you get pregnant much harder for a baby to be positioned cephalic or head down so growth restriction c-section a septum is something that you definitely want to know if you have because we typically recommend removal This has been debated over the course of the field, and I will admit my own bias here. So I know that you've listened and you know this. I had many miscarriages, and so being on that side of the table, if there's something that we know you have that increases the risk of a miscarriage, I personally would not want to prove that I have had miscarriages. I would not want to prove that I have pregnancy loss in order to get that repaired. It's abnormal. It poses an increased risk. I would want it repaired. That's not how everybody feels. And especially a while ago, the standard was, well, we won't remove it unless it causes recurrent miscarriage for you. I think the tables have turned. If I find one, I'm going to offer you removal. So if it is arcuate, It doesn't need removal because it doesn't have reproductive complications because you still have that good myometrial blood flow that placenta can still grow in appropriately. That's what this is all about because if there's no blood supply to the septum, how's a pregnancy going to implant? So in an arcuate uterus, we consider that a normal variant, nothing to do. If there is a septum, a piece of tissue dangling inside the uterus, then that might need intervention. HSG test is not the world's best test for this it's really wonderful for fallopian tubes but because of the three-dimensional nature of the uterus and the two-dimensional nature of the image if it is debatable or unclear I will often follow this up with a saline sonogram in the office where I could get a better idea of what is going on and does it need intervention.
1: Hi so I feel like everything talks about long periods irregular periods being like 45 days my average cycle is actually like 13 on average so I get my period like twice a month and I don't have an LH surge I've been told I don't have PCOS and I don't have like any symptoms that come with my period that would like you know signal that I have some sort of something so I guess I'm just kind of lost on where to go and like what a could what could possibly be. The issue, Um, and I've had like my thyroid tested and everything like that. I just want to hear like your thoughts like, what would you get tested for? What do you think it might be? Or what kind of like fertility options would I have to do in the future? I just feel like lost with like podcasts, even and doctors and researching it because everything that considers like an irregular period is either a long one or not at all. I have mine twice a month.
0: When you use our code A-A-W, that's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know the women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? This can be frustrating, and certainly, number one, this is abnormal. Irregular periods can happen on a spectrum. So what I always tell patients is that if you can imagine we have perfectly regular, normal ovulatory cycles, you grow an egg, you get a surge, it ovulates, that follicle turns into a corpus luteum, makes progesterone, you're not pregnant, you bleed. And it happens at a reliable, predictable interval. As you start to sway from the ovulatory spectrum, the first change is actually luteal phase issues. So a shortening luteal phase or bleeding in your luteal phase. So you actually, stage one of ovulatory dysfunction would be your cycles getting closer together. Then we will see them start to lengthen out. You get those longer, more irregular cycles. And then you would eventually go to amenorrhea or absence of periods. This data is actually super interesting, comes from some prolactin studies where people had their prolactin very high and they treated it and they watched it go back down through this different spectrum of ovulatory dysfunction. And I feel this way about a few different things. So what can cause some of those shorter periods? One can be some of the things you mentioned, so thyroid or prolactin. Another could actually be starting to run out of eggs, so having a low AMH can actually cause some shortening of your cycles before it really goes into that lengthening irregularity. So I would want to make sure that you've had your prolactin checked. I'd want to make sure we had an AMH, an anti-malarian hormone, checked. We also can see some of those short cycles in forms of what we consider hypothalamic dysfunction. And people think of hypothalamic amenorrhea. This is where The simplest way to put this is your body is too stressed and your brain shuts off and stops sending out FSH and LH, the hormones that get you to grow an egg or ovulate. In its profound state, you have no periods, no hormones, has other health issues, can last for a very long time. But the body is super dynamic, so there's got to be an in-between before it goes from everything's perfect to the light switch is turned off. And so that's where I start to feel like the body sometimes is in this hyper-stress state, whether it is from exercise, caloric restriction, whether it is from illness, chronic illness, chronic stress, something that is causing your body to feel like it can't release the normal hormone, something is inhibiting that. We don't tend to see close together periods with PCOS. But one thing that you said that is interesting to me was that your periods weren't just short, like 20 to 23 days, but actually you said 13. And that's so short and that we are not getting an OPK that's positive. I'm wondering, are these actual ovulatory bleeds, which is what a period is, or is this something totally different? So it's important to remember when we think about our cycles, the bleeding that we're seeing, if it's in response to a progesterone withdrawal is... Pretty consistent and pretty much the same. But there are other things that can cause bleeding, and there are things that can cause cyclic bleeding, which is always wild. So, most notably, things inside the uterus, like a polyp or a fibroid that are on the innermost portion of the uterus, depending on where you are in your cycle, might cause some of that lining to get disrupted. And so, that can also cause some cyclical regulatory bleeding. Some people get very profound luteal spotting. So what part of your bleeding is spotting and what part's an actual full flow bleed that can help us try to elicit where the problem may be. So I don't know who you've seen. If you were to come to me, I would do an ultrasound. I would probably also do like a saline sonogram or something to evaluate the innermost part of the cavity. And then I would want to look at our egg count and AMH a prolactin, and then sometimes try to see what the ultrasound looks like when you're having some of these bleeding episodes to decide, are they really ovulatory or not? As far as the second part of your question, let's say this is early stage and ovulation, unexplained reason. You can give somebody ovulation induction medications, and that can normalize out weird periods in a lot of people. So that is medication to have you release more FSH, or to lower your estrogen, and that often can help get the job done. My strong suspicion is periods every 13 days is not a real ovulatory bleed, and it's either luteal spotting, mid-cycle bleeding, there could be a polyp, a fibroid, something else that's causing the lining to not be stable that I would want to get checked out. So hopefully we'll get to the bottom of this. I know it is super frustrating, and definitely a circumstance where you're going to have to be an advocate for yourself, which I know is hard, but you're right. This is not normal. So you do want to get to the bottom of it to know what is going on.
1: Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name is Miranda, and I had a kind of odd question. I've been diagnosed with PCOS, but the only androgen I have that's high is androstenedione. I think I'm pronouncing that right. All the others, the DHA, the testosterone are normal. I can't seem to find any information about this online anywhere.
2: Do you know what causes this or anything I can do to help, you know, correct those levels? Thanks.
0: PCOS can be such a complex diagnosis. And I think that the diagnostic criteria ultimately, at least the old ones, represent limited understanding of the disease. And remember the syndromes, let's just think about it, PCOS is a disease, but Polycystic ovarian syndrome. A syndrome is a constellation of symptoms. That's what is something that is a syndrome. So it really is a description of a few different disease processes. But the end result is that you have somebody who is having irregular periods or absent periods due to a hormonal dysfunction, ovulatory dysfunction with an increase in androgen production. So the diagnostic criteria here is two out of three, the general categories being one, androgenism. That could be clinically. You could have acne, excess hair growth, any signs of increased androgen production, or biochemical, which means lab evidence. So that can be testosterone, DHAS, or dione, like you have. And then we have an increase in follicle number, which is based on ultrasound evaluation, where we can go and count the small antral follicles. Remember that in the ovary, I like to think about all your eggs being in a vault when you're born, and every month you're losing a group of eggs. And the size of that group depends on how many you have remaining. So when you have more eggs left, aka you're younger, you lose more eggs per month. From this group of eggs, each egg grows inside a follicle. In the normal sequence of events, the brain sends out follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH. And then FSH causes an egg to grow. That egg grows, matures, makes estrogen, ovulates, and then becomes a corpus luteum and makes progesterone. When you're not pregnant, that progesterone drops, the corpus luteum dies, and you get a period. So to be diagnosed with PCOS, you need two of the three. High androgens, irregular absent periods, high egg count. If we really think about what the disease is, I like to think about it as ovarian dysfunction. So you are born with a lot of eggs. Your brain doesn't know this each egg makes a teeny little bit of estrogen just enough to prevent the brain from sending out a strong enough signal the brain sending out its normal signal of fsh it gets diluted amongst all of the eggs again each egg makes a tiny amount of estrogen so the brain doesn't know it needs to send more and you get stuck in this process where you're not ovulating or it takes a long duration of fsh exposure to get to an ovulatory state And the ovary loves to make estrogen. And so when it doesn't make estrogen because it's doing this funny thing, essentially the pathway to make androgens gets turned on. And that's what causes some of those elevated androgens and then some of the clinical symptoms we see. PCOS can further be made worse by being overweight because fat cells make a type of estrogen that further decreases the FSH from the brain. That is why you will hear Lose weight as sometimes a first step in PCOS rhetoric. That's actually not the case for everybody. But back to your question, Dione is a weekly androgenic steroid hormone. It actually is a stepping stone. So if we think about all of these, what we call sex steroid hormones, like progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, they're made from derivatives of cholesterol. And they just look a little structurally different. But Dione is a stepping stone in the production of testosterone and estrogen. So really, there's not like a medication you can take to just lower its levels. It's important in our normal functioning. But if you're making more testosterone, you might have higher levels. So we do see that with PCOS. It is not as androgenic, meaning its impact on your body is not quite the same as testosterone. So you might fall into the situation where you don't really have acne or hair growth. But if you do and you have hyperandrogenism, that's where you sometimes start looking at certain treatments for that. So a couple things to say, if you have clinically significant symptoms of having elevated androgen levels, classically, we think about this as being acne or having hair growth, specifically, you know, in the facial hair region, but there are some other symptoms as well. And PCOS is not the only thing that can cause high androgens. So the other things that you can see when your androgens can be high can also be in a large clitoris, you can actually have some voice deepening, you could have irregular periods and fertility, and then you could actually get hair loss, like male pattern baldness. We think about hair growth, but then think about hair loss. So specifically in that temporal area or along the hairline. Here's the most important thing to say. If you have high androgen symptoms, So if you have irregular periods and you go in and you have ovaries with tons of follicles, you get diagnosed with PCOS, that's fine. That's two out of three. But if your chief complaint is I have all this terrible acne, I have all this hair, I suddenly am having, my clitoris is getting enlarged, my voice is deepening, you could wrongly be diagnosed with PCOS because somebody could say, Oh, clinically, you have high androgen signs, so I'm not going to test you. There are a few diseases that also cause high androgens that you always want to rule out. And so it doesn't have to be ruled out in everybody. But again, if the androgen symptoms is the leading complaint, we have to think of something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. That is checked for with a test called 17-hydroxyprogesterone, a blood test. We have to think about tumors. You can have a tumor in your ovary or your adrenal gland making abnormally high levels of testosterone or DHEAS. Not mildly elevated, but there's an actual cutoff value, 200 higher of testosterone, 700 or higher of DHEAS, that you would need further evaluation to make sure that this is not a tumor causing your high androgens. And then another one is Cushing's, which essentially is very uncommon, but it's when your body has too much cortisol, and this is because a tumor in the pituitary gland, if it's Cushing's disease, makes too much of a hormone called ACTH, which works on the adrenal gland to make cortisol, and that's a normal pathway, so your body can run from the bear or deal with stress. But if it's happening in this cause, then what's happening is the adrenal glands not only getting stimulated to make cortisol, but it's also going to make some of those adrenal androgens as well. And Cushing's has some other very interesting symptoms. Rapid weight gain in the face, the neck, the belly, high blood pressure, these purple stretch marks. We just always want to make sure that what you're getting diagnosed with matches the clinical symptoms. And PCOS is by far the most common. And it just should be a little nugget that if, You're really having androgen symptoms that might be a different pathway for evaluation. And you want to make sure that you're advocating for yourself by having your number one complaint be these androgen symptoms versus infertility. Now, if we think about your treatment, it's really going to depend on what is going on. If we think about just androgens in general, birth control pills can be an option because they increase sex hormone binding globulin from the liver. They can bind testosterone, lower it down, give you some relief. There's medications like spironolactone. This is an anti It can be really helpful for bad acne or body hair cannot take. If you're trying to get pregnant, it can cause birth defects and male fetuses specifically. And then there's other options, which sometimes metformin can decrease testosterone production from the ovaries. So that could be helpful. Losing weight if you are overweight and trying to reduce your stress overall. None of these things are perfect, right? So a lot of the root of the problem is trying to get back to an ovulatory pathway, and some people with PCOS can't do that. But to Dion in general, it's a normal step in the production of both estrogen and testosterone. I wouldn't let myself focus on just that alone, but I would be thinking about other lifestyle modifications, depending on your life, that you could do to just try to have the healthiest life possible, try to reduce stress on your body, and try to be in a place so that your hormones can be the best they can. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince.
2: Hi, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I love your podcast and I watch your videos. I think they're very informative. I um, have done IVF for five years. I have two kids and I'm trying to do a third one and unfortunately I had three miscarriages and I discovered that I have a potential endometriosis and I am on lopron right now. And I've been having a little bit of like a left, like a dual pain on my pelvic area on the left side. It is just there constantly and I wonder if it's like a cause of a polyp or a cyst, and I was listening to your fibrous and polyps podcast, and I did have a hysteroscopy done before IVF and when I was barely starting, and I'm wondering if polyps, once removed, can come back, and if so, would it be beneficial to do another hysteroscopy, or could the pain also be from the Depolupron that I am like mid month right now I just started my shot on the 4th of September so of August so I don't know um what are your thoughts on if polyps can come back once you have removed them or is that one-time thing done and if this might be a sign of something else thank you for answering my question bye
0: this is a really good question so we'll tackle it in a few different parts One, endometriosis is endometrial like tissue that is outside the uterus, and this can definitely cause pain, it can cause blockage, it can cause cysts. Depolupron is a medication that works at the brain level to prevent the brain from sending out FSH and LH, therefore, not stimulating any of these lesions because these lesions respond to estrogen, which FSH stimulates the ovaries to make estrogen. So trying to get into what we consider a suppressed state where these endometriosis lesions are not active and therefore not inflammatory. It alone is not causing any pain. It does have some side effects and it can cause hot flashes. you can be tired, feel mentally dulled, some of the low estrogen side effects, but abdominal pain is not one of them. You could have an ovarian cyst, certainly we definitely see that with endometriosis and once you have one of those cysts, they do not tend to go away. We also see pain from scar tissue development that can happen with endo. These are things that could only be diagnosed with either ultrasound or even surgery. So may or may not get an answer, but ovarian cysts are seen on ultrasound. The other question, excellent, was about polyps. So polyp is a benign growth, well a typically benign growth, a growth of the endometrial tissue that's on the inside of the uterus. Polyps and fibroids are not related but polyps can cause some inflammation inside the uterus and potentially make it harder for implantation and people who have polyps once tend to get polyps again. Polyps are usually not painful either though. They can cause some abnormal bleeding or some spotting. They might cause you to feel like your period's irregular, but very, very often they are asymptomatic. So I would recommend you get evaluated for a polyp. That can be with a saline sonogram, an HSG test, or a hysteroscopy. And if you're having the pain, that should be discussed because an ultrasound might be a better way to evaluate, could there be a cyst or something else going on? Overall, wishing you the best.
2: Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name is Alyssa,
1: and I've been listening for almost two years now. I love the pod and your YouTube videos. They are so helpful. I am in my second medicated IUI cycle and my numbers are so interesting. Um, I had bigger follicles last time with a thinner uterine lining and this time my follicles are smaller with a thicker uterine lining like I was seven last time and 11 this time. I was just curious like is it normal to have these numbers fluctuate like this uh depending on the medication and all of that so thank you so much have a good day
0: best of luck on your IUI journey different medications do impact the lining different and I wanted to start off by saying both of these are normal seven millimeters 11 are both normal I am worried about neither if we just want to talk about IUI in general when we combine it with ovulation induction it's the ovulation induction medication that is changing the lining A few structural things before we dive into some of the nitty gritty about what the medications do is that every clinic functions a little bit differently. And very often I might see a patient on a day and know that their follicles are going to be mature a couple days later and won't bring them back for an ultrasound because follicles grow at a predictable rate. And I will just say, oh, pretend it's Monday. I might say, hey, you're going to trigger on Wednesday for the IUI Thursday So I'm not really getting your peak lining because the last time I saw you was on Monday. Second is the lining is stimulated to grow based on the estrogen, right? Estrogen from the follicles grows the lining. And that estrogen is follicle dependent, meaning each mature follicle makes a set max of estrogen. So if you have more follicles, you typically are going to have more estrogen and therefore a thicker lining. So on two equal meds, If you have one and you have one follicle and then you go up in dose and you have three you are likely to have a thicker lining when you have three follicles and this is really true for letrozole or for gonadotropins using fsh or the combination fsh lh so gonadotropins are direct fsh is what drives follicle growth fsh is normally a pituitary hormone from the brain FSH is follicle stimulating hormone. So one option is you give somebody FSH and that grows a follicle and the follicle makes estrogen. That's the most direct. That is the least likely that is done because it costs money, more money, and because it's riskier. The rate of multiples, high order multiples goes up significantly. The rate of canceled cycles goes up and many people are not doing that. It's actually not the recommendation for most people. The other, the more commonly used medications are oral medications. And now you're going to have letrozole and clomid. Letrozole is also known as Femara, and this is what we call an aromatase inhibitor. An aromatase inhibitor is going to lower your estrogen. It is going to do this, let's just simplify it and think about it, eating up the estrogen that's in your bloodstream. Your brain, remember your brain and your ovaries, they are best friends in different states before FaceTime existed, and they talk on a phone, and their phone is hormones, hormones. So your brain has no idea if a follicle's growing, if it's ovulating, if you're pregnant, unless the ovary is giving it feedback. So when it starts to grow an egg and it starts to make more estrogen, the brain says, oh, estrogen is rising. We're growing an egg. We don't need more FSH because we're already doing the job. And your FSH level starts to drop. When that estrogen is at its peak, your brain says, "Woohoo! we have now seen 200 picograms of estrogen for 50 hours and we're gonna send out an LH surge. So when the brain suddenly senses a drop in your estrogen because you took letrozole, it's going to say, I need to send out a stronger signal of FSH. And if you do that at the start of your cycle, what you're going to see is therefore this might help you ovulate if you don't, or this might help you achieve what we call super ovulation when you're ovulating multiple follicles. Letrozole really does not tend to work on many other tissues because it's just eating up estrogen in the periphery our different clomid works a lot differently. So clomid or clomiphene citrate, that is what we call CERM, a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So a SERM goes and it actually binds to estrogen receptors. So clomid in the brain binds to the estrogen receptor. And so your brain, instead of thinking that there's a drop in your estrogen, thinks you have no estrogen. Oh my gosh, we got no estrogen and it is going to send out some FSH. Well, that sounds well and good, but number one, you're going to have a lot more side effects because your brain likes estrogen also. And when it gets none, hot flashes, headaches, mood changes, those aren't real on Clomib. The second is that you have estrogen receptors in different parts of your body. And another important one is your uterus. So we have estrogen receptors in the uterus and we know that because as your estrogen rises, it's going to stimulate the lining of the uterus as it's growing. And so one of the side effects we can see with Clomid can be a thin lining. So even though you might have had a stronger FSH signal, therefore you had more follicles and you had more estrogen being made because of how Clomid might act at the uterine receptor, suddenly now your lining's not as thick. And so that's a very common thing we see. It is why sometimes you'll see us go away from Clomid. If you have a thin lining in one cycle, we might then try Letrozole. And everybody uses these medications a little bit different. They have their faves. Letrozole is drug of choice for PCOS. I also like it first line, especially if you have a decent AMH for unexplained or for chronic inovulation. Clomid is better if you have a low ovarian reserve or you have unexplained infertility and you're a little bit older or you have a less robust AMH. But again, side effects, uterine lining. So some people will definitely try letrozole first. Importantly, neither of these medications are likely going to work in somebody with hypothalamic amenorrhea. Both of them require the brain to be turned on, for a lack of a better word. In hypothalamic amenorrhea, the brain is not responding to a low estrogen. So the brain's not sensing that low estrogen or it's not responding. Something in the pathway is messed up. So it's not sending out FSH and your estrogen is low. So the idea that I'm going to now come in and use Clomid and you're going to have a different outcome or I'm going to go eat up your non-existent estrogen in your periphery and I'm going to get the brain to send out FSH, not going to happen. I never say it's wrong if you're general ob or somebody wants to try because oral meds can be cheap and easy and that's easier than coming to see me but you definitely shouldn't be doing that for months and months and months and if you're at a fertility clinic already and getting monitored I'd, I'd raise a question mark on why you're spending your time doing that treatment all right friends well I hope you liked this month's episode of answering your fertility questions The fertility Q&A is always my favorite. I love the questions you're asking and keep them coming. We are going to do a special compilation of some of these questions, especially over the holiday time period because I think they're just easier to listen to. And sometimes you don't know what questions to ask until you hear somebody else ask them. And then you say, well, that was a really good question. You can always call and leave your questions with us. The voicemail is 657-229-3672. Again, the voicemail is 657-229-3672. You don't have to leave your name. You don't have to tell us where you're from. Although, hello to those of you in Canada or wherever you are. I love it when you do share those tidbits about yourself. And to all of you saying really sweet things about how long you've listened to the podcast for two years or that you love it or that you see the YouTube also. It really puts a smile on my face and I'm just sitting here at my desk and I want to extend a huge thank you. Creating the podcast, creating the YouTube channel... It's done in my free time and it is just such a labor of love and I appreciate you guys all for it so much because your support, your sharing of it, your comments, your reviews, all the super sweet things when you share it on your Instagram or when you're listening to it on your morning walk, it just keeps motivation that what I know is true. You deserve information about your body and there's so much that we don't know and I'm so honored to be the one who can sit here and share it with you. You can also ask questions on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. We answer some of those on Instagram or point you to content that might exist to answer your question. We answer some in the newsletter and we answer some at the end of all of our normal regular episodes. You can also sign up for the newsletter at Natalie newsletter. And that will have some of my favorite things with some really great discount clothes, especially come Christmas time. I like to share all the crazy things that we do. If you haven't been around for a while, big, big, big on the holidays. So stay tuned to see what is going on with our Christmas Advent calendar and all the fun activities. We do an activity Advent calendar, not one with presents or toys, but one where we do Christmas things. And it is one of my favorite things and one of the things that we look forward to every single year. The courses are also back. So nataliecoffordmd.com, go over to the website. There's the natural fertility course and there is the IVF guide. And if you want a more guided program diving into some of these topics, that's a great place. I will say the joint program is absolutely my favorite because you get the lifestyle stuff, access to the Facebook group, which I'm in all the time and answering your questions. And then you get all the IVF info if you're doing a cycle about how to be your best advocate. Overall, love you guys. Thanks so much for all your support. Wouldn't be here without you. And in a season of big grief for my family, all of you who've reached out for your love and your support and your strength, I feel it. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a
1: woman. Hey guys, welcome to the collective.